There's something that has really been haunting me. I need to get some closure on it. Tell me. So one time I went into a meeting with you and I thought it went great. It was so much fun to be together again. But then I heard that after I left the room, you said, now that's someone I'd like to take tie shopping. <laughs> and what I can't figure out is, is that a compliment? Because I'm someone who would be fun to go tie shopping with? Or did you not like my tie? <laughs> Well, James, first of all, the good news, I cannot remember what your tie was. Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. I'm very excited to talk with Dr. Stephen Lawson. Dr. Lawson is a world-renowned preacher, a teaching fellow at Ligonier, and the founder of One Passion Ministries. He'll share with us his journey into Christian ministry and the biblical case for the centrality of preaching. Today, we also have a special treat at the end of the episode. Dr. John Piper will share how he became a Calvinist. You might be surprised by his story. Now, let's hear from Dr. Lawson. Dr. Lawson, thank you so much for joining us here on Ministry Network. Thank you, James. It is great to be with you again. Can you share with us your journey into Christian ministry? Yeah, thank you. James, I was converted when I was 17 years old. Almost immediately, I felt a desire to want to serve the Lord somehow, some way. When I went to college, which would be a little over a year later, I was thrown into a situation unexpectedly where I found myself in the pulpit on Sunday morning addressing a congregation unknown to me that I would be put in that situation. I thought I was only giving the prayer that morning, which I had never even prayed publicly. So I was traumatized to even give the prayer that Sunday morning. And as I was walking to the podium, the minister announced that I would be giving the morning sermon. I was overwhelmed, to say the least. All I had with me was a New Testament It was one of those old living Bibles. I had pictures even in my living Bible. And I was a long ways away from home going to college. And I was very somewhat scared being on my own. My mother had spoiled me growing up my whole life. I had been reading my Bible virtually every day. And there was a passage in Hebrews 13 that says, I will never, never leave you nor forsake you. I was in a college with about 30,000 students. I did not know one single person on campus. And as I read that verse in my dorm room, it was like a lifeline for me to hang on to, that God was with me and that God would support me. And so as I took those next steps into the pulpit and looked out into the faces of the people sitting there, this is out in West Texas in just a very rural, almost cowboy-like setting. All I knew to do, James, and I I did not grow up in a Bible-preaching church. I grew up in a liberal church. So I've I've never even heard a Bible exposition. The only thing I knew to do was to open my Bible to that verse, to Hebrews 13, and to read it, and then to try to begin to explain what it means. Now, I'm 18 years old at the time, and that was exactly 50 years ago. And as I tried to explain it, I was away from home. I'm by myself. The Lord is with me, and the Lord is with me. If he's with me, he's with me to help me. He's with me to support me. He's with me to guide me. He's with me to protect me. There were some men out in the pews who began to say, Amen. 
I've never been in a church where somebody said amen. <laughs> so I, I thought they were upset with me. <laughs> so I, I paused and took a step back and tried to relaunch The Lord is With Us, you know, to support us, to help us, just whatever would come to my mind. And they said amen again. And I was, I was startled. I struggled through that, and then it seemed to me just the natural thing to begin to make application, though I didn't even know what the word application meant. The Lord is with you, and the Lord is with you wherever you go. You know, and I'm looking at them, whether you're out in your field, whether you're with your cattle, whether you are at home, the Lord is with you. And if the Lord is with you, he hears everything. He sees everything. So I'm just beginning to try to flesh this out. I've had no teaching in how to preach. I've never even heard a Bible sermon. But to me, to read the passage, explain the passage, and apply the passage is just the most instinctive, natural thing to do with a passage of Scripture. And 50 years later, nothing has changed. I went to college on a football scholarship. I went to Texas Tech out in West Texas. Certain opportunities and doors would open to me because I played football. And I was a part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so they would want a football player to come on a Sunday night and speak, let's say at a banquet or, you know. And so I started out with that and kind of worked my way up to be a Sunday night preacher. And these are like one-shot opportunities. I mean, I preached once in a town called Earth, Texas. And it's always the same directions. You go to the grain elevator, you take a left, you go to the water tower, you take a right, and there's a first whatever church that you go to. That's how I got started, James. And the more I did it, the more I loved it. I had been a part of a high school ministry. I decided I'm going to start that ministry out here in West Texas. So I got permission somehow. I would have never given myself permission, but I got permission to start this high school ministry in the local high school. So because I played football, I went out there and met with the football team, met with the cheerleaders, invited them to come to a meeting. And I knew if I could get the cheerleaders to come, the football players would come. And so I started this high school ministry. And James, I I can't believe this, but it began to grow, and high school students were converted. And at this time, I don't even have a commentary. I don't have a study Bible. I don't own a Christian book. All I have is this New Testament. And the only thing I can do is turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and just tell a narrative out of one of the Gospels. And I remember the first one I did was I'm in a living room in someone's house, and everyone's seated on the floor and in chairs. And let's say there's about 50 kids sitting there. I started with the paralytic that was lowered down through the ceiling. Son, your sins are forgiven. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin, I say to you, take up your pallet and walk. And just the simple telling and some explaining and some applying of God's Word. The power is in the Word. High school students began to come to Christ, and it floored me, and to the point we couldn't meet in homes anymore, and we had to move into a bank and in a lobby and and all of that. So that's how I got started, James, and I've never even spoken to a preacher. I've never even spoken to a pastor, so I don't even know what to do. I went to law school and was miserable, and they kept changing the law on me while I was in school, and I thought, why am I memorizing a law that they keep changing? And it made me want to study a law that would never change, the Word of God. I worked for a couple of very successful politicians, 
just saw the emptiness of all of that as it related to me. And God was using that. I then, for the first time in my life, sat under a Bible preacher. Someone who like walked into the pulpit with a Bible and said, take your Bible and turn with me to, he actually had a text and opened it up and he had structure, he had an outline, he had application, illustration, he had an introduction, he had a conclusion. As soon as I saw it, it was like, that's me. That's what's inside of my heart to want to do. And I just needed to see an incarnation of someone doing what was in my heart to do. And so at the time, I was working at First National Bank in downtown Memphis. And James, I'll never forget getting in the elevator and going to the top floor and going into the president's office and saying, I'm resigning. I'm going to seminary. And he said, you're crazy. You know, we have this career path marked out for you. And I said, you don't understand. God's called me to preach. I packed up everything I owned in the back of my Volkswagen Bug and drove all the way to seminary. And as I think back on it, James, I don't know that I I even was admitted yet. I I think I just showed up. Literally, I I just knew I I needed to be trained to do what was in my heart to do. And so there was a certain romance to almost the simplicity and the naivety of that. It's just in my heart to want to preach the Word of God. So that's how I stepped into that moving stream of ministry that has swept me down the river, you know, literally for the last 50 years. How did the sermon develop historically as the centerpiece of pastoral ministry? The sermon has always been the centerpiece of the gathering of God's people. I could walk us through the four Gospels. God only had one son, and he made him a preacher. He made him a preacher, and he came forth preaching. He was an itinerant evangelist. He prepared his way to come by having a forerunner who was a preacher, who was a voice in the wilderness crying out. During the time of his preaching ministry, Jesus trained 12 men to be preachers. And in the Great Commission, in Luke's account, he sent the 11 out to preach. In Acts 2, verse 42, it says that after the 3,000 believed, verse 42, and they were continually devoting themselves to, what's number one on that list? To the apostles' teaching. And then it says to fellowship, to prayer, and breaking of bread. Number one on the list from day one in the church was to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what was driving everything in that first embryonic congregation. And James, when you take the book of Acts, here's what's amazing. One out of every four verses is a sermon, or is the equivalent of a sermon, where one of the apostles is speaking to a large entourage of people. It would be impossible to read the book of Acts and to come up with any other conclusion other than the preaching of the word of God was the centerpiece for the early church. We call it the Acts of the Apostles. It's really mistitled. It really should be the preaching of the apostles because that's what the book of Acts is. It's the preaching of the apostles. And we love fellowship and prayer and all of these other aspects, but that's not in the spot, what's primarily in the spotlight. Those are all important and non-negotiable, but there is a hub in the middle of the wheel that all of the spokes are attached to. And that hub is the preaching of the word of God you come to the pastoral epistles, and you could hand it to a sixth grader. What what do you think is the reoccurring theme in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus? 
A blind man could see it. It's the ministry of the Word of God. It's the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. You would have to reinvent some obscure school of interpretation to come up with anything else. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, as Timothy is in over his head at the church at Ephesus, he has passive men, unqualified elders, unqualified deacons, aggressive women, overstepping their boundaries. They're not caring for the widows, etc., etc. Paul gives Timothy one instruction. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In other words, Timothy, until I can get there, hold the fort. Strap yourself in the pulpit. Read the text. Exhort with the text. Teach the doctrine of the text and move on to the next text. That's what's front and center. And then in 2 Timothy, when Paul is literally writing the last chapter of the last epistle, these are the last words to ever come from the greatest Christian who ever lived, the Apostle Paul. What does he say to Timothy? It wasn't go get in a fellowship group. It was preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with much patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, etc., etc. As he passes the baton to his young son in the faith, where he pushes down on the gas pedal and what he emphasizes is the preaching of the word of God. And he binds Timothy's conscience to this by saying, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, preach the word. The entire book of Hebrews is an evangelistic sermon. At the end of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, 22, the author refers to the book of Hebrews as a word of exhortation. That's a sermon. And that phrase is used in Acts 13, 15 as a sermon that Paul preached on his first missionary journey. So what you have there is a red-hot evangelistic sermon that proclaims the supremacy of Christ over Moses, over the angels, over the priesthood, over the old sacrifices. And there are these warning passages sprinkled all through it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Trampling underfoot the precious blood of Christ, etc., etc., Harden not your heart. Behold, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation all of those warning passages, that's a sermon. That's a sermon. It's what Martin Lloyd-Jones called theology on fire. It was theology on fire. Obviously, the preaching of the Word of God is in the centerpiece of the life of the early church. You come to the book of Revelation, Even the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus has promised, blessed is the one who reads and and the one who hears and the one who heeds. And then a messenger in each of the seven churches, an angelos, which I take as a human messenger, is to stand in front of the congregation at Ephesus and Thyatira and Philadelphia, etc., and read the book of Revelation and no doubt do what Paul told Timothy to do, to also exhort and to teach as you're reading this. So you're asking me about the place of preaching in the early church. There in the first century, just in inspired scripture, there is the priority. So, hello. I mean, this is running from cover to cover, the primacy of preaching.
Every great era in church history has been defined by a new generation of preachers of the Word of God. And the low ebbs, the dead desert areas of church history has been when God has withheld his preachers. And when a new era begins, a Reformation, a Puritan age, a Great Awakening, a Victorian age, a modern missions movement, it's always raising up a new generation of preachers who go out to preach the Word of God. I mean, that's the mark of the Reformation, for heaven's sake. They weren't sitting in an ivory tower. They're standing in a pulpit, preaching. Calvin's preaching every day, every other week. I mean, hello, you would think we would get the message. They even moved the pulpit in the Reformation back to the center of the building and get this altar out of here. An altar is for a sacrifice. And there was only one sacrifice that was made two, you know, for us 2,000 years ago. There is no more sacrifice to be made. So we don't need an altar in this building. We'll have a communion table, but we're going to put the pulpit in the center where all the sight lines intersect at the pulpit with a man standing there with an open Bible. And Martin Luther said that the pulpit is to be the throne. And an open Bible is God ruling through the preaching of his word in the life of the church. So, James, we can just go on and on and on with this, but God will honor the man who honors his word. I texted last night... (laughs) There are only two kind of preachers, the man who preaches the word and the man who needs to resign. There are only two kind of preachers. Either you preach the word or you need to go sell life insurance. You need to go sell used cars. But a preacher, guess what he does? He preaches and he preaches the word of God. He has nothing to say apart from the word of God because he knows when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Whoever's listening, if anyone's still listening, (laughs) if God has called you to preach, for heaven's sake, open your Bible, stand up there like a man, and preach the word. Tune in next time to hear Dr. Lawson discuss how to craft a great sermon. Now, for your special treat. Dr. John Piper spent a night with the community at Westminster Theological Seminary the sponsor of our podcast. He shared the influence the seminary had upon his ministry and his conversion to Calvinism. I apologize in advance for the audio quality. Dr. Piper bumps his mic. You can hear some dishes clattering and some people coughing and laughing, but it's John Piper, so I promise it's worth a listen. I look out on you, and I thought of this yesterday, that I would be looking out on you And I would be looking at an institution tomorrow that's an absolute amazing reality. That it exists is amazing. It's amazing. Beyond words, amazing. An institution that would last from 1929 on, holding fast truths that you can only see by miracle, is amazing. So it's just awesome to be standing here. I just feel like I could die and go to heaven because I get a privilege of just looking at you. So I am so happy to be here and just look at you. Now, my understanding of what I'm supposed to do here is say nice things about Westminster, which is not a problem. And I thought of four reasons that I personally am thankful. So this is very personal. And Bible, Reformed theology, 
life of the mind slash books and missions. So I'll tell you why each of those is relevant for me. In 1968, as the Bible battles were heating up, and I was a freshman at Fuller Seminary, E.J. Young's book, Thy Word is Truth, had been published five years before and stood like a rock in the middle of much swirling water. And some of us young 22-year-olds were grasping for help. So not only were the waters of my life swirling around that issue at Fuller, but I was undergoing a Copernican revolution theologically as Romans 9 destroyed my Arminian commitments. I left Wheaton uh, pretty much a convinced Arminian, having just read a book called Life in the Sun, which argued that branches can be cut off from the vine, and therefore perseverance or eternal security is false, and it made sense to me. And then I land at a seminary where several professors began to push my nose in the Bible. I didn't learn my Reformed theology mainly from John Calvin or even Jonathan Edwards, whom I esteem as highly as one can possibly esteem a non-divine being. I learned it from Romans 9 and Romans 1 to 8 and Galatians and the Sermon on the Mount and 1 Corinthians with Dan Fuller pushing my nose down in the nitty-gritty of the conjunctions and the connectors of in order that and because and so that and although and so on. And to this day, find the theology inescapable in the Bible. Well, as I looked around, as I was discovering these things, and said, what am I getting into? Where is this? What, what is this? There was this bastion called Westminster on the other side of the country that had solidity about it. It wasn't like somebody woke up and said, I think we'll believe in the sovereignty of God now. I mean, there, there, I mean, those of you who do historical theology will regard this as utterly naive because you know it goes back further than Westminster. But for me, casting about as a Southern Baptist kid, suddenly discovering that his mind was being dismantled to have anything that looked solid on this felt very reassuring. And just to give you a sense of, of what I mean by solid, the people at Westminster over the years, one of the reasons this institution has the staying power that it does is because of how long some of you and some of them taught. So there's Van Til, 43 years, and John Murray, 37 years, and Ned Stonehouse, 33 years, and Paul Woolley, 48 years, and Ed Clowney, 40 years, and Dr. Gaffin here, associated now at least for almost 50 years with the seminary. And I looked at this institution and I thought, this is not a fly-by-night thing. These people have been thinking about this for a long time and have been teaching it for a long time. So I thank you, secondly, for staying power and solidity and symbolic existence. Just always 
there. Westminster, the very name, signifies the standard that is raised. That's number two. Number three is books slash life of the mind. Vern, you are just weird. Nobody writes books on philosophy and mathematics and probability and teaches New Testament. I mean, this is just weird. And I love it. Because Reformed theology that you learn from the New Testament relates to everything. Isn't that wonderful? So that we're not pigeonholed. A little, little pigeonhole. I think about these three verses. <laughs> you write your book on those three verses. And I don't have any idea what you're talking about. That's just totally, I hope, foreign to this institution. Because of how, if God is sovereign, everything relates to everything. So the life of the mind is this glorious challenge of putting things together, always putting things together. Yes, the analytical task of, of taking things apart. Yes, we do that with text, but all with a view of putting them back together again so that they are clear and beautiful, like probability is beautiful, evidently. So in my early days, Romans was the key watershed document to turn my world upside down. And you know who it was who guided me through Romans? John Murray. That is, that is the most beautifully written commentary on the planet. People who write commentaries are not generally good writers. They just patch things together. That, I read a sentence, I just want to go back and memorize it. Because his eloquence is phenomenal. The, the work that must have gone in to the way he says what he says about the glories of, of Romans 5 or Romans 8 are amazing. So I thank God for John Murray. And the last thing, briefly, is missions. In the early 90s, we started a pastor's conference in Bethlehem. In 1988, first person to come with J.I. Packer, bless his heart, one of his callings in life was to take little teeny ministries and, and endow it with his presence and give life to us. And he did that for us. So that conference has been going on since 1988 at Bethlehem. And I always, every conference, no exception, for the last 26 years, there has been a missions speaker at the end. Because I resolved that... If we love the glory of God, we will show it by loving the global glory of God and the glory of God known and praised among all the peoples of the world. So I wanted missions to be in every conference. It has not over the years been easy to find reformed spokesmen for serious global engagement. And one of the first ones we looked to was Harvey Kahn, who was at the seminary. So thank you for your commitment to the Bible and thank you for Reformed theology and your solidity and your symbolic presence. And thank you for believing in the life of the mind and believing in books and being willing to pay professors to write books. And, and thank you for Harvey Kahn and for the nurturing of my life in world missions. To learn more about Westminster and their new online programs, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree. Talk to you next week.